Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1776, 13 of its colonies declared independence from Great Britain. Although we call this period in history the American Revolution, the colonists called it the cause. And Joseph J. Ellis has called his latest book about the early years of U.S. history, The Cause, subtitled The American Revolution and Its Discontent, 1773 to 1783. It is published by Livewright and brings the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize winner Joseph J. Ellis to our show today. It's good to speak to you again. Welcome. Leonard, how are you? It's good to be with you again. Oh, this is a fabulous book. Um, but a search on Amer- on Amazon brings up 12,000 books on revolution and founding, including a number of your own. What did you want to add to the conversation with this book? Repeat that question for me, Leonard. I'm not hearing you as well as I should. I'm up here in Vermont. Maybe the, the winds are doing something. Repeat the question if you would. I said that uh, there, uh, according to Amazon, there are 12,000 books on revolution and founding, oh. including <laughs> any number of yours. So what did you feel you could add to the conversation with this? Ah, I see what you're saying. Yes. One of my favorite uh, quotations at the start of a book is by um, a book uh, on the Victorian era. Um, That first sentence is, the history of the Victorian era can never be written. We know too much about it. (laughs) Certainly there are plenty of books written about the so-called American Revolution and in fact, if you look back at what historians call the historiography, mm. that is the history of the history, there are waves of interpretation. They have different names, the Whig theory, the progressive theory, the imperial theory. Um, what you call presentistic, unlike, the presentistic fallacy, right? Yeah, that's the we, you know, the historian can't be objective. Uh, he can't claim to be a mathematician. On the other hand, we do aim for the standard of detachment. And the fact is, the even detachment is probably an impossible ideal, because all of us, by definition, are writing about the past from the point of view of the present, Mm -hmm. looking at then from the point of view of now. And so, invariably, our interpretations reflect the issues and convictions of our moment, uh, I can think of Henry Slish, uh, Arthur Slissner's biography of Andrew Jackson, which was published and won the Pulitzer in 1937. And guess what? Um, Andrew Jackson turns out to be Fred, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and the Jacksonian democracy turns out to be a version of the New Deal. Um, so it's inevitable that we bring our own convictions with us. And um, And the only thing you can do is try to be as self-conscious about it as possible. And the book that I have written on um, the what I'm calling the cause is clearly influenced by ongoing events in our time in the late 20th and 21st century. And give you an example um, that I think we now can understand the dilemma the British Army faced in winning the war against the American insurgents uh, in a new, in a way that we couldn't before. Let me try this out on you. You mean because of Afga- Afghanistan? Uh, well, let me put it this way: a newly arrived world power comes onto the scene, having just won a tremendous victory in the French and Indian or Seven Years' War, 
um, brimming over with confidence, certain of its economic and political and military supremacy, and steps into what turns out to be an unnecessary and unwinnable war that's a um, uh, unwinnable, as I say. Um, I think since Vietnam and now since our our excursions into the Middle East, we can understand that in a way that we couldn't before. Well, we'll get to why you call it unwinnable later. But even people of the time, George Washington, in fact, said, quote, any historian who managed to write an accurate account of the War of Independence would be accused of writing fiction. That's true. He did say that. He said it right after the Battle of Yorktown, uh, Leonard, and and but he, he meant it for the whole war, too. Um, uh, if you take a look at the Battle of Yorktown closely, and I do that in one chapter in the book, it's a series. All the luck was evenly divided in the Yorktown the Americans and the French got all the good and the Brits got all the bad and things had to happen in a certain sequence or else we would have not won the, the battle and therefore the war. Um, if, in fact, the American Revolution, so-called, was a war between armies, conventional armies, I think that um, Washington's statement would have been absolutely true because it was a miracle that uh, a group of amateurs gathered together under the rubric of the Continental Army, could defeat defeat the dominant military power in the world. The French, excuse me, the British Army was as good as the Prussian or the French Army. But what made the British force so powerful was the British Navy. Taken together, uh, thinking about this, when when did the British lose a war between 1750 and 1950? Once against us. Um, so, But it was not primarily a conventional war. It was simultaneously a civil war for control of the countryside. And the British not only had to win battles, they had to subjugate the entire American population. And with a total force nas- internationally of only 50,000 soldiers, that was going to be impossible. American theater was not going to be like Scotland or Ireland. Um, and as they discovered that, they came to the realization um, by 78, especially when the French come into the war, that they, they, the war was unwinnable. You call the colonists prudent revolutionaries. Right. Did their calling it the cause mean that they didn't view their fight as a war to become independent from Great Britain? What did they uh, see as their cause? Uh, the cause was in, in, in its core and eventually by – the summer of 76, a war to secede from the British Empire and declare their own independence. But they crossed the Rubicon two years earlier, uh, that is in 1774-5, in response to the coercive acts and the occupation of of Massachusetts. Um, They came together in what they initially called the common cause to to oppose uh, British troops in, in, in the United in what we now call the United States. Um, uh, but that the, what am I trying to say here? That they created something called the Continental Association, which essentially radicalized the entire countryside or politicized it. Um, and it made impossible for an ordinary American who might have wanted to just sit out the war. And I think that was, you know, 
maybe a majority. You couldn't do that because somebody would come to your house and ask you to sign a commitment. First, uh, the commitment was to uh, in support the non-importation agreements that they passed in 75. But then later it would be to uh, agree that the we should secede from the British Empire. And if you wouldn't sign, they would say, OK, think about it and I'll come back. And the person doing this was a neighbor. And there were like 10,000 committees like this. They called them committees of safety and instruction or excuse me, committees and inspection. Um, and uh, eventually, if you didn't sign, you would be ostracized and you wouldn't be able to go to church. You wouldn't be able to buy goods at the local market. And eventually past that, past that, if you if you didn't sign um, they would come and burn your house down um, and you would be driven out. You would be uh, forced to leave. They wouldn't kill you, um, but that was happening. And what that meant was wherever the British Army won a victory, after the victory, the resistance took control again. Uh, it was like a ship moving through the ocean and the wave crashed over the aftermath. And um, and so they the, the British Army was an army of conquest, not an army of occupation. They didn't have the troops to do that, and they simply could not subjugate. They misread. They thought that the, that the cause was an egg and could be easily cracked. The resistance was a nut. It was going to be very difficult to crack. But I can't and, the, um, I can't the, and that's the dilemma they faced. Can't the origins of the crisis be traced back a lot earlier to the Treaty of Paris in 1763 and King George III's proclamation of 1763, which yes, defined a line that ran down the western border of the Appalachian mountain range? Yes, and I say that. that um, the, uh, the Brit- in some ways, the British win too totally. I mean, the, the, the problem they have is that their victory is so complete that in the wake of the victory, they believe they've got to consolidate their control over their colonies. There had been very little control before. This is what Burke called benign neglect. And in attempting to impose that control, to redo the governments, to establish British control in a, in a new and, and, de- and de- definitive way, they were essentially saying that these people do not have all the rights of regular uh, British citizens. They are colonists. The, the colonists said, you are attempting, you are plotting to enslave us. And that's when the trouble really begins. Um, and, um, and with regard to your prudent question earlier, initially they say, we oppose what you're doing. We've, we've made arguments clearly that this is a violation of British law. We're the conservatives. We're the ones saying we need the traditional historic rights of British citizens um, you're the ones changing the rules here. Um, but they don't go to war. Remember, um, uh, there's a 15-month gap between Lexington and Concord in April of 75 and the Declaration of Independence in July of 76. They wait on the far side of the Rubicon, if you will, in the fond hope that the British government will come to its senses. Um, and they there were some th- British colonial officials who were sympathetic to some degree. Thomas Pownall. Uh, right. 
he yeah uh, there were they, they were warning them that, that, that and then if when the debates began in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, there are certain voices there that are saying William Pitts, one of the big one, Edmund Burke is another saying, "Wait a minute, we don't want to go down this road. This can get us into a war that we will find very difficult, and these are our cousins over there. these are our American cousins um uh, these aren't um uh, alien people. Um, and if you just read the debates in Parliament, you think, oh, my goodness, there's a pretty strong anti-war movement there. But the truth is uh, the British ministry allowed the dissent to continue because they knew they had the votes, um, mostly because the votes were controlled by George III and patronage. And so the, 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 all the legislation that was being opposed um, by the dissenters passed enormously. And um, and the British, you know, again, diluted. And the British officer club members would say, we can march from one end of the America to another with one regiment. And um, he, as one person said, geld or uh, castrate all the males, and it's all going to be over. It's going to be easy. Um, and um, But the point I'm making, they're prudent revolutionaries because they resist going to independence until it's inevitable. And the reason that the majority of Americans decide to commit themselves to independence, again, very reluctantly, they want to stay in the empire, is because they, in the end, believe they have no choice. George III is sending uh, 32,000 troops, the largest armada ever to cross the Atlantic, to invade them, supplemented with Hessian soldiers who are infamous for not taking prisoners, um, and that, in a sense, George III, who they hope to be a savior, is is not a savior. He's the worst possible person to depend upon as a messiah. And they eventually, with great reluctance, in the summer of 76, commit themselves to independence. Well, to some degree, weren't they resisting that proclamation of 1763, which confined the expanding American population to the region between the Atlantic coast and the Appalachian mountains? Uh, did the colonists hope that they could just keep on going across the continent? Uh, at the, the initial re- the reaction to the proclamation of 1763, and it's interesting by what, what legal authority uh, a, par- a, a king's proclamation had at that time, but that they didn't, wage a great resistance against it because it was unenforceable. Hmm. That is, uh, they put 10,000 troops, the Brits did, on the Appalachian border. You didn't have to low crawl between the the various British forts to go to the west. And the flow of uh, immigrants across um, that line swelled between 1763 and 1773. You just couldn't stop them. And so, but it was perceived as a uh, unenforceable act by the Brits that nevertheless was a clear manifestation of its desire to prevent the Americans from, as Jefferson would put it, pursuing their own happiness. Joseph J. Ellis is my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. His latest book, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontent, 1773-1783, published by 
Live Right Publishing. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Your history covers the years 1773 to 1783, uh, but, but fighting broke out in 1775. So what's the significance of those two previous preceding years? Those are the, that's the time. Uh, the, the, what happens is the Boston Tea Party, uh, which throws all the, the tea into the Boston Harbor, uh, generates a huge reaction from Parliament and George III to militarize the conflict and to uh, establish military rule over the, uh, over the colony of Massachusetts and specifically Boston. General Gage brings in the troops. And that moves it across the line. And that's the point at which resistance becomes um, what we now would say national. It goes beyond Boston. And Sam Adams is a big player at this time by establishing committees of correspondence with other colonies. And that's where the term the cause, the first version of it is the common cause comes into existence. We have to rally in the support of our sister colony, because if we don't, they'll do the same thing to us. So the Brits think that they're going to uh, stop this by setting an example. And in some said, in some sense, they generate the very thing they're trying to avoid, a movement for independence. Um, and you call and, it uh, a conventional war and the civil war. So yes, what, what yes, makes this war different yes. I mean, from being just a conventional war? A conventional war is a war between armies in standard battles. And the, the, and the, the, the fighting begins um, in an unconventional, well, the, the British army goes out to Lexington and Concord and getting back, they suffer enormous casualties. If the British army goes out beyond the, the Boston, they're at risk because 50,000 militia can rally at any moment. General Gage tries to tell his superiors back in London, look, you don't know what you're up against here. Um, but they press on. The Brits double down. And again, for your listeners, the, the interesting thing is, unlike the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, the American revolutionaries are not intellectuals and philosophers and ideologues. They're, they're people that are experienced statesmen in their own respective colonies, and most of them wish to avoid breaking with Great Britain. Mm. And that's the reason I say it's a prudent revolution. It's the reason why the words in the Declaration that Jefferson wrote are probably the most forgotten words he ever wrote. He said, um, governments ought not be changed for light and transient reasons. And only after a long uh, trail of abuses becomes clear do we, uh, should we feel forced to take the final step. Um, a distinctive kind of revolutionary, a revolutionary who is cautious and who doesn't really believe in revolutions, believes in evolutions. Adams is a classic example in that regard. Which Adams are you um, talking about? Because there's a whole bunch of Adamses here. Uh, well, there's Sam. I mean, there's Sam and, and then John. there's John and there's Abigail. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think uh, John is... is a uh, is the major player in the, as the play 1776 shows in the, in the run up to the war who recognizes earlier than most. And of course he and Sam have a, have a reason to be in that position because it is Boston and Massachusetts mm. 
that is suffering the 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 impact of British occupation. Um, but he is basically telling his colleagues as early as as early seventy five that you're waiting for a Messiah that will never come. Um, that's what he writes to Abigail. Um, uh, the correspondence between John and Abigail during this time is one of the most revealing family correspondences of all time. And uh, she herself, in the famous letter of April of 75, late April, says, you know, it begins, um, and by the way, and I need the letter begins, by the way, you know, you got to start worrying, uh, and Leonard, and um, and she says that we're we're fighting a war on the basis of principles that have implications for women's rights. Um, and and then women are being taxed without their consent. And there's a bit of repartee between them in in this way. And and Adams says, oh, you know, everybody knows that women are really the tyrants of the family (laughs) and he will not suffer under the tyranny of the petticoat. But but what's happening in 75, 76 is the whole liberal tradition as it will come to exist over the next two centuries, both women's rights, the rights of uh, the end of slavery, the uh, the uh, rights the, of what the end now of the property qualification to being, vote. It's being introduced at this moment for the first time as the radical implications of this otherwise prudent revolution. Well, the, all the uh, the committed supporters of the cause believed in all of those freedoms for all, including the end of property qualification to vote, the expansion of women's rights, gradual emancipation program to end slavery. And, of course, none of those came with the revolution, but that's a whole other matter. You write about a number of generally overlooked players in this history. Mm, Uh, John Jay, the diplomat, activist John Dickerson, Daniel Morgan, who led the Virginia Rifles, military leader Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Green, financier Robert Morris. I'm familiar with those names, kind of, but how and why have they been overlooked generally? I think among specialists in the field, they'll know who they are. But among most Americans, even most historically literate Americans, uh, they don't know about him. And if they know about Dickinson, they know about him as the, the man who didn't sign the, the declaration. He mm-hmm. suffered under that. During the early years. John Jay, I know because they named a school after him. <laughs> they, they named a college after yeah. him. That's right. And um, Dickinson College. And um, uh, but Dickinson is your prudent revolutionary. And um, and uh, and eventually, even though he doesn't sign he immediately leaves the Continental Congress to serve in the Delaware militia. And um, he supports the war effort, um, even though he he couldn't sign the declaration. Um, uh, Robert Morris is a guy that suffered over the years because he was identified as a kind of early robber baron. He was the wealthiest man in Philadelphia and maybe in America. But I see him as a man who uh, provided support for the cause in ways that need to be recovered, um, like uh, just an example, when the the army is being disbanded at the end of the war and they're not getting a pension and they're not getting their back pay, he says this is a disgrace it's a, and, and they won't let it happen. And he writes personal checks for $700 for every man in the Continental Army, nearly bankrupts them. Um, or when the, a few years, a year earlier, when the Battle of Yorktown is a possibility and Washington can't get his troops down. 
from the New York outside of New York to Yorktown Peninsula. He just and they, they, there's no money to do it. And uh, Morris says, "How much will it take?" And Washington says, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars." And Washington and Morris says, "Here's a check." Hmm. So that Morris is the financier of the revolution. And in fact, his view of the economy and the plan he puts forward during the war is almost exactly the opposite of the plan that Hamilton, eight years later, will propose uh, as secretary of treasury for the new nation after the Constitution. It's almost exactly what Morris says. Some of the people you've written about aren't well known at all. Your first profile is of Joshua Loring. Ah, yes. And and now, also you discuss his wife, people. Elizabeth Betsy Loring. Right. Uh, uh, it, uh, uh, Joshua Loring is a, is a loyalist, a prominent loyalist who is, um, uh, who's got a attractive younger blonde blue eyed wife named Betsy and um, that he is made head of the uh, prisoner uh, office for the all the prisoners captured during the war. And that is a kind of reward given him by General Howe in return for the loan of his wife uh, for a few years, who becomes um, Howe's mistress throughout the early years of the war and is reported throughout the British press. Um, uh, Loring probably kills more Americans than anybody else in the British Army because his Slave ships out in the East River, about 18,000 people are put there and only 11,000 come out alive. The British treatment of prisoners was worse than the Japanese treatment of American prisoners during World War II. Um, eventually, he goes back to England. He dies pretty quickly, though his wife lives on and lives on in, you know, to, into her 80s, and, um, and they resume their marriage. Um, but um, Betsy Loring is, um, is you know, it, it's, it's an arrangement. I, I think that it's fair to say uh, in war, fidelity is one of the first casualties. And, um, and, uh, and Hal then goes back with his own wife at the end of the war, too. After the war, although loyalists were, to quote you, ostracized, threatened, and routinely denied their rights, weren't they still treated better than in other revolutions? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And um, I mean, there is a spectrum of, of loyalist opinion. On one side would be those who are, one extreme would be those loyalists who decide to commit to and fight for the British Army. Um, and that's about, um, well, I don't know how many you want to put there, but it's about 8,000. The total loyalist population, according to most scholarly estimates, is slightly less than 20% of the total population. That means uh, something like 400,000. Um, uh, we know that about 60,000 leave to go back to England or to more of them to Canada. But that means that 350,000 don't. And what really happens to most loyalists is over time, they're forgiven. They're like members of the church who've been convicted as sinners, but over time, they're permitted to come back. Some of them not. Some of them move to other towns and go west. But there's not a guillotine or a firing squad wall 
uh, in the French Revol- in the American Revolution as there is in the French and then the Russian Revolution. And one of the reasons there's such a large loyalist diaspora in the war is that we don't kill them. Um, and there's not such a diaspora after the French and Russian revolutions because they're all dead. Now, you write that Great Britain never had a realistic chance to win the war despite its military and economic superiority. It never I had do. A- that's what I was talking about yeah. earlier, and that's unconventional from most people's point of view. Um, but I think it's uh, it's unassailably correct um, in terms of assessing the likelihood of their being able to subjugate the entire continent. Um, the, the British Army was just too small, and um, uh, they misread the, uh, the, the resistance as too, uh, just based on a few misguided leaders. Um, uh, and by the time the French come into the war in 78, they really, really know they can't win because once the French enter, they have to, the British have to protect the rest of the empire too, especially the Caribbean. Um, I don't see why they did. I mean, they should have ended the war in 78, but it keeps going on because George III is standing there saying, I will never, ever uh, admit defeat. And uh, again, it sounds familiar, but it's an early version of the domino theory. If I let the North Americans go, we're going to lose Canada, and then we're going to lose the Caribbean, and then we're going to lose parts of Malta, and then we're going to lose India. It's an early version of the domino theory. In truth, of course, that's not what's going to happen, but that was his rationale for insisting on the continuing the war, even when it was absolutely clear to everybody that they couldn't win. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. back with Joseph J. Ellis, a historian, New York Times bestselling author, whose books include American Sphinx, which won the National Book Award, Founding Brothers, which won the Pulitzer Prize. We're discussing his latest, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontent, 1773 to 1783, published by Livright, which is a division of W.W. W. Norton. Um, the So now we come to the whole business of uh, the the delegates going to the meeting in uh, in Philadelphia. The delegates of the 13 colonies met there in the summer of 1776 to declare independence from England. Initially, didn't the delegates want Richard Henry Lee, who wrote the Lee Resolution, to write the draft of the Declaration of Independence? What happened there? Uh, no, that's not the way it was. Um, but I can understand why you think Lee is the person who wrote the resolution that they voted on, that was voted on on July 2nd, mm-hmm. that these colonies are and, and have, have every right to be independent states. That was the resolution written by Lee. The committee they created, the committee of five, that include Jefferson, Franklin, and um, uh, Adams, of the major, the major players in the five, nobody thought that was a big assignment. The real action was going on elsewhere. Um, the British Army was about ready to invade Long Island. 
Um, each state was attempting to rally its own its own opinions and own forces. Um, there was a thing called the Dickinson Committee that was supposed to write uh, essentially a, a, a description of the kind of government where they should have after the war or during the war. Um, but they've, they appointed this committee after the, to, to say, okay, if we do decide to vote for independence, we need to have a document to send out to the rest of the world announcing the reasons for our decision. And it wasn't regarded at the time as an important assignment. Uh, what happened in the negotiations among the committee if, uh, <clears throat> is is controversial because Jefferson and Adams both had different versions of the story. Um, the, the Adams version was that initially they offered the right to, to draft it to, to, to Franklin. Franklin was the most famous pro-stylist in America and probably the most famous American even before Washington. Um, he was the American uh, Prometheus. And Franklin said, no, I, I have made it a rule never to write a document that will be edited by a committee. Um, and then, according to Adams, they sort of thought he, Adams, should write it because he had been such a force for pushing the the, the Congress in this direction. He said, for that very reason, I should not do it because I've made myself obnoxious to a lot of members. And that left it Jefferson, who was a person who had draft, who was sort of gotten a reputation as a draftsman, as a, as a writer of uh, certain uh, documents that the Congress had prevent had presented, and and he took it upon himself to write it over the course uh, by of himself days in the, in the second floor of, uh, of his apartment affairs. in Philadelphia. Yeah, he 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 did it over seventeen days working on other governmental affairs at the same time. Were the other major founders Washington, Madison, Adams, Hamilton, Franklin consulted? Uh, did they were they invited to make any uh, edits to the first draft? No, I mean the. Um, I mean Washington was busy uh, trying to defend New York and Long Island at that time. Franklin, uh, I mean, well, anyway, that it did go before the full Congress, which put itself into a committee of the whole, and edited the document, eliminated, making about eighty-six changes and deleting or changing about twenty percent of the text. During the time that this was happening, Jefferson was sitting there listening. And he was really, really unhappy. And what were they Franklin taking knew, out or changing? Pardon me. What were they changing? Um, there are multiple paragraphs they deleted. The most famous one they deleted was a paragraph. It's probably the most incoherent and uh, verbally or literally un, 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 well, difficult to understand paragraph Jefferson ever wrote. It's, a, it's one that essentially attempts to blame slavery and the slave trade, first the slave trade, and then in, by implication, slavery on George III. Um, I mean, after all, if you're writing an indictment against George III, which is what he's doing, and you're blaming him for everything, you might as well throw that in. And in fact, uh, uh, he tries to do that. Um, but it's a confusing paragraph because one of the things he says is that Governor or Lord Dunmore in Virginia is inviting uh, African slaves to join him. And that seems to be at odds with his claim that uh, that 
this is an anti-slavery statement. Um, uh, some historians have latched on to the Dunmore issue and to, to make it the grand interpretation, uh, saying there's some sense that the Declaration itself and the the cause itself is a war to protect slavery. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think, in fact, the values of the cause are incomparable or, excuse me, incompatible with slavery. The exact opposite is what Jefferson is really trying to do in that paragraph. But but you write. It's also got some some paragraphs that are pretty sentimental about we, you know, we mourn over our lost British friends. They cut that. Um, But you write one of the things that's interesting. They don't cut anything in the paragraph that we think of as the most important. The one that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Um, uh, That's they just pass over it. They think it's just a rhetorical overture. Um, And in that paragraph, it's important to notice a change that Jefferson himself made. What they leave in the trinity that Locke had established of rights are life, liberty and property. That's the Lockean trinity. That's the tradition. He changes that to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. He gets pursuit of happiness from uh, George Mason's draft of the Virginia Constitution, which says life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of heaven. But it's a huge change because property would have allowed the slave owners to claim that they have rights protected under the Declaration. You knock property out, and they don't have that. Um and so it's one of the reasons why I disagree with those people who make the what I found to be a ridiculous claim that the uh, war for independence was really a war to protect slavery. Quite the opposite. But you do write that the drafters made a couple of tragic mistakes in not addressing slavery or Indian removal. And you say they could yeah. imagine defeating the world's greatest power. I'm quoting you. They could imagine creating a new country and political system. They could imagine separation of church and state, but they could not imagine a biracial society. Um, That's right. And other That's right. I mean, figures didn't think that blacks the, I want to separate the slavery issue from the racism issue. Um, There is a consensus that slavery is at odds with the values of the American revolution. Washington, all the slave owners agreed, Washington, Jefferson, um, Madison, George Mason, Patrick Henry, they all agreed about that. They all say that. However, the revolution launches a movement that we are still living with in some sense. It's a backlash movement. Once you decide that slavery is on the table as something that, you know, that we're heading towards emancipation, the question becomes, well, what happens to the freed slaves? And that launches a racial backlash in the North as well as the South. But especially in, the, in places the, like South Carolina, where over half the population was comprised of black slaves. That's right. 60% in South Carolina, 40% in uh, Virginia. In the northern colonies, the answer is segregation. That is, black, freed blacks cannot vote, cannot serve in militia, cannot serve on juries, cannot live in white neighborhoods. In the south and the deep south, especially, where the numbers are so much larger it is unimaginable that they're going to have them living next door to each other. And so their answer is um, they're going to have to, they need to be 
sent somewhere else, initially maybe to the Western territories, but later they think it's going to not, that's not going to be good enough. They're going to have to send them back to Africa or to someplace in the Caribbean. Um, and the, so you, this is the beginning of a backlash movement that then will move throughout American history. What Martin Luther King called the arc of the moral universe. Every time we make a movement forward on that arc and the revolution initiates that movement forward, you get a backlash because there's a pool of racism beneath the surface of American society that will probably never go away. And in the late 18th century, my own best judgment is between 80 and 90 percent of the white population could not imagine living on equal terms with African-Americans. Um, the, the groups that are that disagree with that are many of the evangelicals, the of the day, they call them new lights, the Methodists, the Baptists, and especially the Quakers. Um, and even Washington is willing to think about it, but the, the, not, the dominant problem is in some sense, I hesitate to put it this way, democracy. A, a vast majority of the white citizenry is unprepared to imagine a biracial society. This will repeat after the Civil War, when after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, we get Jim Crow, this will happen after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65, when you get the Southern strategy of the Republican Party. No, Amer no Democratic president uh, or candidate for president since 1965 has ever won a majority of the white vote. And then when you elect a black man as president, you get a backlash. Um, we think that uh, uh, we initially hoped that the election of Barack Obama would usher in a kind of post-racial America. The exact opposite occurred. The racist, this, this is, you know, make America great again means before a man who looked like Barack Obama was president and before Martin Luther King had his nightmare of a dream. And I'm afraid to say, I don't know what the percentages are now, but I would say it's between 30 and 40 percent of white America uh, is unprepared to accept the full implications of the civil rights movement. And I, I wonder whether if Haitians weren't black, whether we would be seeing the same sort of thing happening these days. But uh, at the time, wasn't the British press quick to point out the hypocrisy uh, in all of this, that slavery was in contradiction to the principles of the cause? Yeah. Um, and didn't uh, the leaders of the revolution know that um, that to be the case? Je yeah, they, they, they the know it's true. I mean, what's the name of the great British trading. writer? Um, uh, I'm, I'm getting too old and blanking on names, but um, he's the man Boswell writes about. He he drafts a, a pamphlet saying, uh, why is it that the loudest yelps for liberty are always coming from slave owners and uh -huh. slave drivers? And and, you know, that's they acknowledge that's true. I mean, and um, Washington himself says it's true. It's true. And, and it has vast. The, the war is an educational experience for Washington, who starts as your typical Virginia planter who thinks of slaves as, as cattle or uh, uh, not as human beings. And, and over time uh, is forced to realize that he has to change his way of thinking. Um, uh, he's overseeing an army that is 10 to 12 percent African-American. Um, and uh, 
the elite unit in the Continental Army by the end of the war is the Rhode Island Regiment, which is almost entirely African-American. And his own manservant, Billy Lee, uh, is a trustworthy man who saves his life more than once throughout the war. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, you know, if you say justice delayed is justice denied, then you're going to be disappointed, of course, because the promise of the of 76 is a promise that women's rights is not going to be fulfilled until until the early 20th century. And I would say that our own commitment to civil rights as a nation doesn't occur until the middle of the 20th century. And you're um, right. Quote, the two abiding legacies of the cause, American independence and slavery, established the central contradiction of American history at the very start. That is what I think. And um, there are two great tragedies. Uh, there are many, many triumphs in the founding. And to begin with the revolution, we, create, we win the first successful war for colonial independence in history. Uh, we established the first nation-sized republic in history. We established the first secular society in history. We eliminate church, uh, the church and state. We recognize divided sovereignty. Nobody could thought you could do that. As we call it, federalism. Um, all those are huge triumphs. Um, and it's a nation that's going to eventually lead the Western societies against the tyrannies of, of Germany and Japan uh, and Italy in the 20th century. But, but, um, uh, beneath that is this belief on the racial front that we can't live together as uh, as equals. The the strongest spokesman for that racist position is Thomas Jefferson, the very man who writes the magic words of American history. He really doesn't think that uh, blacks and whites can live together on equal terms. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Joseph J. Ellis, uh, whose latest book is The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783, published by Live Right. Um, now, uh, let me let me let me just add a footnote to what I just said, if I could, Leonard, without going on too long. There's all these achievements and triumphs, and, and there are also these two great tragedies. And I just think the tragedies have to be faced squarely. One, and maybe that's a function of writing from the point of view of the 21st century as we began this interview. One is the failure to reach a just, rela- just accommodation with the Native American population. I was just going to get to The that. other is to end, or not to end it, but to put slavery on the road to extinction. I think both of those are tragedies. And the question that we need to argue about, I think, is not whether they're tragedies, but whether they're Greek tragedies or Shakespearean tragedies. By Greek tragedies, I mean it was inevitable. It was the great leadership couldn't have changed the direction that history took. By Shakespearean, I mean it was avoidable. It could have gone the other way. If leadership had been more effective and more competent, then, then it could have gone the other way. I think on slavery... <laughs> It's a Shakespearean tragedy. And so you've got this, this huge irony. This is the greatest collection of political talent in American history at the top. And it fails. It fails to lead on this issue. Now, between uh, 1783 and, and 1785, the Confederation Congress appointed commissioners to negotiate with the Native American tribes. Um, what did those negotiations look like? Because you call Native Americans the biggest losers in the war for independence. Uh, what do I call them? 
the biggest losers? Didn't oh, you? yeah. I mean, more than the British army, which go, or the British nation, which goes on to its glory days, really, in the 19th century under Victoria, the, the, the American victory is attractive. <laughs> Excuse me, for the Native American population. I, I'm talking about my dog here. Yeah, he, he wants uh, the rights of dogs to be addressed in this conversation as well. Okay, well, anyway. Leonard, I have to end. I, mean, I had to go push my dog out the, the door. Excuse me. That, that once the Americans win the war and gain control of the land uh, from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, um, uh, Americans, ordinary Americans, are going to go cross that old line that you described earlier and, and seek their happiness by, by grabbing land. And they're going to carry with them diseases that have 90 percent fatality rates for the African-American people. Um, I don't see how that can be stopped. And um, uh, and uh, and it's it's uh, it's the beginning of Indian removal. Um, Indian removal doesn't come officially until Jackson in 1830, but it's embedded in the founding. It's embedded at this moment. You can see it coming. Um, and it continues and, uh, late into Washington the does century. make efforts as president to do to change it, but he fails. Now, Hannah Arendt, in her history on revolution, notes the irony that the French Revolution is admired for attempting to implement its radical agenda all at once and failing. The war for American independence is often criticized for deferring its full promise and succeeding. That's what I say. Yeah, you're you're almost quoting me there. I think. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, any contemporary American in the 21st century looks back and say, well, heaven's sakes, for God's sakes, you know, we know that slavery is going to be the, the original sin of American history. And it's going to lead to the bloodiest war in America. Why didn't you end it? Um, 40 or 50 years from now, our people are going to look back at this moment when we're living, Leonard, and they're going to say, what in God's name were they thinking? The planet is about ready to, you know, Boston's underwater, New York's underwater. What in heaven's name were they doing back there? Um, so, but in in this particular case, with regard to uh, with regard to the slavery issue, I think they've got a point. Mainly, the 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 founders, the leading founders, thought that time was on their side. They thought that slavery was incompatible with free labor. They didn't foresee the cotton gin. They didn't foresee the cotton kingdom. They thought if they deferred this over time, it would die a natural death or they could squeeze it and control it, not let it spread into the territories. And eventually it would die. Um, they were wrong. They misread the, they misread the tea leaves at that moment. Um, but um, on the other hand, those people who say, well, they should have faced this squarely. They should not have postponed it. If they had faced it squarely, they would have destroyed the unity necessary to win the war. The South and Southern states would not have supported the war, and I'm not sure how things would have turned out. And the same thing's true at the Constitutional Convention. And to say, well, that's they should have they should have called the South's bluff. Well, um, uh, they called the South's bluff in 1861, and you know what happened. You didn't Congress consider accusing John J. Benjamin Franklin and John Adams of treason for disobeying the disobeying their explicit instructions and in agreeing to the the Treaty of Paris of seventeen eighty three? 
Initially, they did, because according to the instructions that they had from the Continental Congress, then called the Confederation Congress, they were supposed to do nothing without the support of the French. They were supposed to defer to the French. And then it became clear that the French had an agenda of their own. And then they had this treaty with Spain that meant we had to also get the approval of Spain. And there was this moment when Jay is meeting with a Spanish ambassador, a guy called uh, Aranda, and they're in Versailles and they're looking at a map and, and Aranda puts his finger on what is now Lake Erie and draws it down to what is now the uh, the southern or the Florida panhandle and says everything east of that is yours and everything west of that is ours, Spain's. And Jay just puts his finger on Mississippi and says everything east of that is ours. And he realizes, does Jay, uh, who I think has the dominant role to play in the, this stage of the diploma, diplomatic uh, efforts in France, uh, this is you know, there, this is not negotiable. We're taking everything east of the Mississippi. And if that's the case, we have to violate our instructions from the uh, Continental Congress. And the Continental Congress, when it finds out they're violating their instructions, nearly goes berserk and, and starts accusing them of treason until the terms of the treaty arrive. And it's, you know, it's the most uh, lopsided victory in the history of American diplomacy, and they shut up after we know how we've won independence and the, and a new Western empire. Unfortunately, I've run out of time, but it's been fascinating. I wasn't able to get to some of the other really interesting things that uh, you write about in this book, like Washington's officers gathered to launch a coup in Newburgh, New York, and some other uh, things. But thank you so much. It's been a fascinating hour Joseph J. Ellis, his latest book, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontent, 1773 to 1783, published by Live Right. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our over 500 past shows, you can access our archive at WBAI.org. And we're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at learnedlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. Help keep the kind of unique, in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. We rely on you 100%. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopez at large so we can continue to bring you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else? Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of London Lopez at Large, thank you so much. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Clara Kahn and Devin Shoemaker of Rooftop Reds will discuss their unique approach to making wines in Brooklyn. We'll see you then.